This is the River Radius, a cultural nexus of rivers, people, and boats. I am your host, Sam Carter. Welcome. I just get chills even thinking about it. I mean, it's euphoric. I mean, I remember, you know, riding into the Middle Fork on the truck and just sitting on the back of the truck and it was like week whatever. Nobody knew at that point and just being like, look at this. Look what we get to do every day. Look at this place. We had an incredible crew. I worked with this just amazing group and we were just loved each other and supported each other and we were tight and we were good. And I was just so happy and boating and the transitions, you know, heading south to the islands every year was like, because I had become really enchanted with sailing at this point and was the instructor trainer down there. And I was getting to pick my trips and run the hot boats and get to do the most desirable trips of the whole group. And it was just easy. All was right with the world for a while there. Like, it was just great. This episode comes to you from One River Guide's life of dreams, joy, sadness, fear, and healing. This episode is the first in a cluster of three episodes, and I recommend that you listen in order, one, two, three, as this story continuously builds on itself. There are so many reasons working as a commercial river guide is one of the best jobs ever. You run rivers day after day, you run some of the best rivers, you get to use different boats. You live outside, cook outside, eat next to rivers, sleep next to and on rivers, travel miles and miles on this earth by boat down rivers, and you probably become pretty good at navigating boats down rivers. There's also a dark side to it at times. The lifestyle lends itself to consuming alcohol, a beer, a cocktail, more beers and cocktails, maybe smoking some weed, sometimes this becomes other drugs, cocaine, pills, mushrooms, acid. For some river guides, this part of the guide lifestyle can become more and more regular and more and more of an addictive habit. If these addictive behaviors take hold, real life challenges can emerge and the dream life can be lost and the person is wallowing in their own bad habits. To be clear, this is not the path and lifestyle of all river guides, but it is a path for enough that it matters to me. If you are an active guide, I'll bet that you know someone who is struggling with addictive behaviors related to alcohol or drugs, or both. And if you are personally struggling with addiction, in the last episode of this cluster, we explore options available for the river guide who is looking for help. There are organizations specifically helping river guides with the challenges explored in this cluster. Because I want these episodes to be excellent, I have a co-host, Jenny Feebig. Jenny is a professional mental health counselor who is also a river guide. Together, Jenny and I created the ideas for this cluster, and Jenny is an enormous contributor to the clarity of the topics and the quality of the interview with our guest. Jenny works with me in all three episodes. You will meet Jenny more formally in a few minutes. For many years, I worked as a commercial river guide, and now that I am no longer a commercial river guide, I have stayed close to rivers and the river guides and have many friends who are actively guiding. As your host of the River Radius, I decided to build these episodes on this topic because river guiding is part of my life. River guides are my family and my friends. River guides are some of my favorite people on this planet. The guides I know and the guides I have yet to meet. I've built these episodes because I want to support river guides. 
In these three episodes, we travel through one River Guide story from the wide-eyed years as a young man fresh on the water to a 30-day rehab program at the age of 39 and onward to today where this guide is three years sober and running a sailing program in Idaho with a healing intention. Please know that each episode in this cluster deeply explores one person's use and abuse of alcohol and drugs and considerations of suicide. Those topics are discussed through first-hand experience. These episodes also follow this story into and through a rehabilitation program and into the same human's current success in life. Today's guest is John Totten, a river guide, a sailing guide, and one brave-ass person who sat down for a total of five hours on two consecutive evenings to let me and Jenny ask him lots of questions to tell his story, and as he says it, in hopes that these episodes can help one person. Please meet John Totten. My name is John Totten. I live in Sandpoint, Idaho. That's where I spend my life these days. How would you characterize, how would you describe your your kind of modern relationship with rivers? My relationship with rivers right now is, um, it's like an old friend at this point. It's, uh, it's, it's this very familiar place where I go to feel better. And where'd you come from? You live in Idaho, you live in Sandpoint. Where'd you come from before that? I grew up on a dairy farm in Wisconsin and, uh, I moved to Idaho when I was 18. Tell me about that early life. 18. Tell me about your early life in Idaho. Oh, man. It was so much fun. I moved to Moscow, Idaho to attend the University of Idaho there. And I knew I wanted to work outside, but I wasn't sure kind of how that would manifest, uh, obviously. And I got plugged into the outdoor program at the University of Idaho. And my whole life just became consumed very, very quickly with this idea of living and working in outdoor recreation and just making a, making that my world. And so it, it happened literally within hours of arriving in Idaho. I was enrolled in a pre-freshman orientation backpacking trip and Got a, got to campus, met with the people. We were packing up backpacks, and we headed to the Selway Bitterroot Mountains within 24 hours of me getting to Idaho. And I was just dropped into the heart of it all. And, uh, and there it went. It never stopped and still hasn't. Did you finish the university, the college there, with a degree in outdoor rec? And then did you also run that program for a while? Uh, no. Well, yes and no. Uh, my bachelor's degree is in resource recreation and tourism, which was in the College of Natural Resources. I did an outdoor leadership minor uh, as well, and I was working at the outdoor program the entire time I was in school. And then after I graduated, I was an employee at the program there in Moscow for one school year uh, as a trip leader and a uh, uh, ropes course instructor doing different things, working on the climbing wall, stuff like that. And then I moved to Coeur d'Alene and became the assistant coordinator of the outdoor pursuits program at North Idaho College, which is where my, I guess, more professional career began when did you start having river time? 
Oh, immediately. Uh, when I moved to Moscow, I remember being on the Lower Salmon within weeks of getting to Idaho. It was very much right away. And so I did all the trips through the outdoor program. Um, and I, but I never got to be a river guide until much, much later. Commercial river guide. All of my early river work was through campus recreation programs. Uh, which was a significant amount of river time, but it wasn't full-time guiding. So it was, it's different. Um, and then I obviously, I just became infatuated with whitewater kayaking. That's really where I got into river life. And so I was a, a kayaker first and a, a rafter second for sure. And, um, and then eventually became a commercial guide well into my thirties, much later. Nissan has a lot of trucks and cars to choose from. Today, we're going to look at their newly updated Frontier midsize truck. And in the middle of this episode, we're going to talk about their fully electric vehicles. The Nissan Frontier, this is a midsize four-wheel drive truck. It has a new look for 2022. Check it out. It's pretty sharp looking. This Nissan Frontier comes in two styles. They have the crew cab with four doors and a short or a long bed. Or they have the king cab model with a long bed. What is important to me in a truck is how much weight it can carry and pull. And what I really mean is, can the truck get me and a stack of riverboats and my river friends to the boat ramp? Does it drive and feel safe? And can it keep those speeds steady when we're driving uphill with all that load? That's my criteria. This new Nissan Frontier has a six-cylinder, 310-horsepower engine with a nine-speed transmission. That's providing a lot of power and a lot of smooth shifting of gears. And this truck can carry about 12 to 1600 pounds in the truck and it can pull a trailer with about 6200 pounds of total weight in riverboat terms that is several boats and frames and boxes and coolers all your dry bags and your water jugs that are full and yes even your friends or my friends maybe all of them check out your denver area nissan dealers in person and online at www.nissanusa.com tell them the River Radius Podcast sent you. Now that you have met John, the storyteller for this cluster, I want to introduce you to my co-host for today's episode, Jenny Feebig. Jenny is a counselor licensed in Montana and Colorado. She focuses her work on humans who have trauma related to outdoor adventures, avalanches, river incidents, climbing falls. You may recall Jenny as she was the main guest on the second episode of the River Radius in the summer of 2019. That episode is titled 138 Days on the River. She and her husband, Mike Feebig, traveled down the Green and Colorado Rivers, source to sea from the Wind River Mountains in Wyoming to the Gulf of California at Mexico. Since that episode, Jenny has become a friend of mine. About a year ago, we began talking about this topic of addiction among river guides and wanted to build podcast content that explores the topic and provides pathways towards support mechanisms for the guides in need that choose to access support. So, Jenny and I kept talking, and eventually we began working on these episodes. To be certain, we are not conducting therapy with John. We are asking questions about his life to learn how his path unfolded. Here's a short intro from Jenny about the focus of her work. So, I'm a licensed professional counselor, and I'm licensed in Montana and in Colorado. So, what I do, I have a private practice, and I work specifically helping people alleviate their responses to like a traumatic event in their lives or traumatic events in their lives. I'm trained in 
a lot of different modalities. But the one that really resonates with me is internal family systems, IFS. I really use that to heal the effects of trauma on our systems. But I also want to say that my my practice, my counseling practice is informed so much by my wilderness experiences. And so I, I, I don't see them as separate. I see them as intertwined. And a lot of folks I work with come to me because of experiences that, that they've had in, in wild places. And now we return to our interview with John. Jenny leads off with questions about his life in Wisconsin. You talked about growing up as a dairy farmer in Wisconsin, and then you moved to, to Idaho for school. And I'm curious what that first river experience was like for you. Like, what, what was it like to be on the river? Yeah, that's uh, it's pretty vivid. I remember uh, Labor Day lower salmon trip, which was a tradition for the University of Idaho program, and I remember that first time just being so happy to be there. I mean, it was uh, it was like going to the moon. I mean, from rural Wisconsin, it's just it's such an incredible departure <laughs> from anything I'd ever seen, and the idea of going down the river for multiple days and seeing white water for the first time and just getting to be a part of it. It was, it felt like I had arrived. I remember being really excited and immediately wanting to be a part of this community, the watching the instructors and the guides lead the trip and just wanting so badly to be one. I just, yeah, completely hooked from the beginning you uh in another podcast you told the story about about the dude who said to you when you were a young guy before he had moved out from wisconsin he said go to idaho <laughs> and you yeah. gave him a lot of credit as like this guy who was just like he said the right thing to you but he was also a guy that when you were young you went canoeing with him and i think a bunch of other kids and maybe some other adults i don't remember all those details but you're doing the canoeing in the upper um in the boundary waters area i think it was and you're watching some other group and you noticed a couple people who are different than everybody else. And it turns out that they're the, the guides on your trip. And you asked your, this, this mentor of yours about that. Was, was there like w when you are on these college trips, when you're on the lower salmon labor day, first time, what's the, what's happening there? Like, do you have this memory connection, this like flow of energy delivering that first vision of guides to that moment there? That's then like creating a, path that you're going to get onto? For sure. Yeah. I remember, um, you know, the thing that stood out in the Boundary Waters when I was just a kid was the group within the group. It was the couple of people that didn't look like anybody else and seemed to be in charge and have it together. And, and then, you know, fast forward a few years to that first river trip and the first few trips and then I saw up close the group within the group. I still wasn't a member of that group, but I got to see like, oh, there's a guide. Now I know their names and now I can talk to them. And I felt like I was one step closer to being a member of that group. And it was a, it was so exciting. I remember just having such, I just adored these people. I just like, I looked up to them so much and just wanted to be one. And, and I got to see that they were human beings though. They weren't this mysterious thing anymore. They were real and 
I started to believe that I could be one right away. What was the difference between the two, the two different groups for you? It was the way they carried themselves. It was clear that they were comfortable and that the others weren't. <laughs> like these people clearly spend a lot of time in this environment. They're dressed perfectly. They move around. They're not uh, hanging by a thread like the rest. It just, there was such a departure between the two. It was so clear to me who was a guide and who wasn't. And also very clear which one I wanted to be. I'm I'm curious to hear more about what's the culture you grew up in that's so different than the guiding culture. I don't know if it was different. I guess I mean, it was just a, such a different place. You know, it was, uh, you know, this dairy farming community. All my, a lot of my friends were farm kids and we had this, you know, what I've come to learn later is such a very unique upbringing. <laughs> but when you're a kid, it's all you know. It's your whole universe. But um, I saw a team, you know, I saw my father run a team on this farm and I saw these employees that adored him and and I saw people working really hard every day and and there it was. And then in school as a kid, it was all about you know, athletics were kind of the center of my universe. So playing sports and I gravitated towards leadership roles. I was a captain of most teams I've ever been on eventually. And it was never because I was the best athlete. In fact, I was likely in the middle somewhere, but there was something else, something I had that allowed me to be in those leadership roles. And so I think that when I see a group of any people, it doesn't matter what they're doing or where they are. My eyes are drawn to whoever's in charge. I'll find them. And I don't need to be able to hear them and I don't need to be very close, but I can tell who's running the show. And that's who I'm going to go talk to because that's what I want to do. I, I like it. I'm, I'm drawn to leadership. Always have been. So let's, uh, let's catch up to uh, when you start, when you really get into the group. When you're really in the group of the guides, like when when does the guide life start? Ah, this is a real beaut. Um, <laughs> it was very abrupt. I remember it was the you know the second year of, in Idaho. Uh, we were heading down for that same Labor Day lower salmon trip, and the fellow who was supposed to row the gear boat didn't show up for the trip. And there was two vans going down to the river and the trip leaders assumed that dude was in the other van and he was not. And we got to the put in for a three day river trip with no gear boatman. <laughs> and, and uh, Mike, the leader looked at me and he was like, well, Totten, you can row that boat. <laughs> and I'd never rowed anything. I'd never rode a, a rowboat in a lake or nothing. And um, I sat myself down in a 17-foot cougar. Anyone who knows what those those double-tubed nightmares to row, uh, it looked like a 17-foot wood tick going down the river. You sit <laughs> in the front of it, and all the gears piled up behind you, right? A, a nightmare to drive. But I didn't know. I'd never rowed any raft of any kind before that. And I remember the whole group looking at me like, really, the kid's going to row all the gear, all the stuff. And then another friend of mine who uh, was another guide on the trip was like, ah, he's a farm boy. He's fine. He'll be good. 
don't worry about it. And off I went. And I remember like looking at my hands and trying to figure out how to turn this thing and what I was supposed to do. And yeah, a couple corners into it, got stuck on the rocks, watched the entire group float around the corner, freaked out, just didn't know what to do, jumped in the river, trying to push the boat off, crying, get back on the boat. What am I going to do? It starts to rain. Um, and it's all like, oh my God, I'm not ready for this. Well, what do I do? I sat there and then I was like preparing my brain to like spend the night on the rocks. I was really spinning out here. And, and then I was like, now get in one more time. And I got in and I was under the gear boat, like pushing on it with all my might Mm. and it came free and then it took off like and i jumped off the rock and like got one hand on the frame dragging down the river climb myself on there's nobody else sees any of this of course they're all around the corner and i got myself back in the oars and i started like pushing to try to catch up to the group and it took me until almost you know till we got to camp before i even saw any boats and um i caught up to them and i was mad i was gonna tell those guys like what the hell man you left me behind this is bs and and i was so angry i remember and i got to the beach and the and the um the trip leader pulled all the guides over and he handed me a beer and he was like, welcome to, welcome, buddy. Good job. Yeah. And, and you know, there's a lot to unpack there uh, for sure. But I remember the day. And from then on, I've, I, I was never a passenger again. What was it like the second day for you after that first experience? Oh, it was like the best day of my life up to that point. I mean, I was in the game and I knew that it was mine to lose. And uh, I was beaming. I remember going through snow hole rapids on the, on the lower salmon, you know, and it was like, we were going to get out and scout it. And I was like, Oh Christ, this is huge. You know, and I'm still trying to figure out the wood tech boat and like super heavy. And, I remember like careening down through, got a big piece of the tooth rock spinning in circles down through the rapid gear boat out of control, maybe one oar in my hands, certainly not both. And like (laughs) just everyone cheering on the side, like, oh my gosh, he made it, you know, and, 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 uh, and it was just the best time of my life. I was like, holy cow, I'm. I'm making it. It's not pretty, but I'm I'm making it, which is, you know, kind of the story of my life. But so it's almost like this farm boy from from Wisconsin was shifting cultures into into this river guide culture. It's like Yeah. Or the beginning know, of it. It was. It was the beginnings. But the only you know, I, I, I say this a lot, like I owe so much of this to that farm upbringing. Um, the fact that I was trained from an early age to get up early and get to work. And I had the ethic built into me that I will carry all the bags up the beach and never stop until it's done. Like, I don't need a break. I don't, I'm not hungry or thirsty. Like, I just finished the work. And I watched others uh, either at my experience level or even far beyond who just didn't have the gas that I did. 
because they didn't have the childhood that I did, like throwing hay bales, it's 130 degrees in this hay mow. And like, it's just what's happening today. And there's no days off. That's the other thing that I got from farming. Like the cows don't care if it's, you know, Halloween or Christmas day or New Year's Eve, it's irrelevant. Sunday, Monday, none of that matters. And that's what it's like in guiding too. Like you're, you know, hurricanes, Easter and New Year's Eve, we used to say. It's all, it's all happening. I, I guess I find myself being curious, like there's so much from the farming culture that really integrated well into the river guide culture. It's like, it doesn't matter what day it is. It doesn't matter what the weather is. Or, there's already an instilled tolerance for adversity for you, barring a Knowles quote here. What were some things in your farm culture that um, that were maybe any kind of hardship or, or something that was hard for you to hold? or hard for you to, to work with? The, the hard thing about the farm life as a kid was that I felt trapped by it. Like we, we, uh, like I couldn't leave, you know, and I could, but, but in my, from my perception, it was like, I have to milk cows tomorrow. Like, you know, every day you, you were, you were tethered to the farm. And our whole family was tethered to the farm. Like you, you could never be gone for very long. Um, and, and that's why I ran to Idaho as when I was 18, I was like, if I get a chance, I've got to, I have to, I have to break this chain. I have to get away or I never will. And I had a, a real fear that it wouldn't happen. And, and it wasn't that I didn't love my family. It was, it was just as an 18 year old, I was like, I gotta, if I get a chance, I've got to get away from this thing. Um, and that's what drove me out West initially. Um, yeah. yeah. Did you, did you think you would come back? I didn't know, you know, I remember that, you know, like you mentioned the conversation with Steve Frederick. I mean, it was a very candid conversation. He told me, if you never leave, you'll always be the boy. I'll never forget those words. Mm. He's like, you need to go and then come back on your own terms. Um, there needs to be a period of time where you're not there and it's your decision to be there. You're not, you're not there because you're obligated or because, you know, your dad said so. It was, it needed to be up to me. And so it was in the back of my mind, but I got out West, man, and I did a river trip and I was like trying to learn to ski. I was like, holy cow, there was just so much and it quickly faded. Like, and, and I'll be honest, I haven't been drawn to live there ever since. I, never once have I, have I been like, I'm going to move back to Wisconsin because I want to. Um, yeah. Yeah. So when things did get hard on the farm, what did what did people do or what did you see your family do to deal with hardship grit your teeth and continue yeah yep we didn't process the experience good or bad much at all uh so the the trauma that happened the the hard things the whatever the grind it didn't matter if it was a big deal or if it was just the sheer duration um nothing got talked about. Um, and the farm kids, we all got together and we would, you know, moan about it. Like, 
you know, we would complain about how hard it is and, oh, my old man this and blah, blah, blah. And, uh, and that's where, like, alcohol really became a mainstay in this is what you do to get a break. This is what you do when you have a little bit of time away. Uh, we We drank beer with vigor at the age of 14 like i mean with what would be considered now to be like a a dangerous level <laughs> we were we were super young um and it's what you did you worked your ass off worked really hard and then you got to go drink beer and rinse and repeat <laughs> and that's what was going down um and so I was primed for the guide culture. Like when I got out there, I was like, oh, so we're going to push boats. We're going to kick ass all day and do this. And then we're going to drink. And then we're going to do this again. Like I, I was so ready for that. Like I had years of experience with that exact repetition. It was just a different venue. Was that drinking with vigor at 14 endorsed, ignored, known by your family, by, the, by your parents, the adults? Yes. Yeah. All all of those things. I mean, it's just what was going on. Yeah. It was the culture, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and uh, so there there was no. The only rule was you needed to be at the barn at five thirty. That was it. You could stay out late and party, and as long as you were there to do your work the next morning, it was fine. That's how most of my friends were were governed. They were just governed by the work itself. The day that you woke up and became a river guide, you didn't know that was going to happen. Exactly. Take us down the way, you know, take us down the, the timeline. Do you continue doing that as a college guide with the college programming? Like what's the culture of, of the guiding there? Yeah. So I, you know, didn't have the traditional path into river guiding. Like most of my friends did. Um, because of the academic program I was in, we had these field studies that happened in late May, early June, right at the end of the school year. And we had to go on these like 10 day, uh, nature ecology field studies. And it took you out of, uh, guide training. And so I couldn't get a guide job and it was all I wanted in the world, but I couldn't do both. And my academics came first, uh, mainly due to the pressure from my mother. <laughs> she was like, if it's a required course, you're doing it. And so I ended up going through college, pouring concrete and doing other jobs and not hmm. becoming a river guide. And I watched a bunch of my friends do it, and but it didn't work out for me. And so I got tracked into campus recreation instead. And so I did that. You know, when I got to North Idaho College as a professional, I was still doing campus recs. So river trips were a big part of our program, but we also did everything else. I guided backpacking trips, mountain biking, rock climbing, skiing, snowshoeing. We did, you know, all of it. We did everything all year. So it was lots of guiding and a lot of instruction in different environments. But the river was always my favorite thing to do. It was always my what I did on my time off was I was still kayaking all the time. And I put together private raft trips and, you know, we did a, a lot of boating. But I, I never 
was a commercial guide until I was like maybe 30. And then finally I was like, okay, I want to, I want to guide for real. Like I've been at this forever and I was, had friends in the guiding community and I'd been a professional for years, but I'd never had a license. I'd never been an actual, you know, card carrying member. When I, when I showed up to go river guiding, even though I'd never done it, I was already in the elder group just due to my experience level and uh, my age, but I really hadn't. I remember, you know, pushing off on the middle fork with a commercial boat and I'd only done the middle, you know, a couple times before and just enough to get licensed, you know, and you had to do a couple trips as a swamper to get your, to get your ticket, you know, and, uh, so I didn't have a ton of experience as a commercial guide, but I had led people in the outdoors for a decade. I was just finally getting to be an actual river guide, which was all I ever wanted to be way back when I was 18. And it just, it took me a long time to break in. Nissan has been building fully electric vehicles for 12 years and has over 5 billion miles on this fleet as a testament to their efficacy. That is billion with a B. Nissan has two electric vehicles to choose from. That is the Leaf and the new Aria. Both of these electric vehicles can handle most day runs on the river. You can put your friends in the car with you. You can have your boats loaded on the roof or in the hatch. You can throw a bike on a bike rack and run your own shuttle. The Nissan LEAF for 2022 has a range between 150 and 225 miles. This is a smaller car with four doors and a hatchback. You can easily add a roof rack system. You can also fold the seats down for inside cargo space. The second vehicle from Nissan is the new Aria. This will be available in the fall of 2022, and you can reserve this car now. This is a slick-looking four-door SUV, has lots of comfortable features and a range up to 300 miles, and they even have an all-wheel drive model. Again, you can reserve that Nissan Aria now. Check out your Denver area Nissan dealers in person and online at www.nissanusa.com. Tell them the River Radius Podcast sent you. So you've walked us through the story where you have left outdoor rec, college outdoor rec, and moved into the guide paradigm that you've wanted to enter into. That's what I'd like to hear more about at this point is, you know, what, what does it look like logistically? Where are you working? What are you doing? Are you doing day trips? Are you doing overnighters? What's your season like? And, but I'm also curious, you know, as you tell that, there's your river work life that is that thing living out of the dry bag. But then there's, you got to step out every once in a while and go check on the bank account and call mom and do some laundry, you know? So what is your, what is your work life, your day to day? And then I think we'll probably step into the seasons, but yeah, I'm curious about what it really looks like when you started at 30 ish. Yeah, it was, uh, it was 2015. Um, when I quit the college job, uh, which was hard, for, everybody was like, what are you doing? You know, <laughs> like, and, uh, I was like, now nah, I'm just going to go do the thing. I'm, I'm tired of all this BS. I just want to go lead trips. I don't want to talk about leading trips. I want to go lead trips. And, um, I was also going through, um, some really dark times emotionally. Uh, my mother died in 2014 and it rocked my world. 
um, and never got processed until much later. And, and it was like, I just want to go, I want to head out. And so I spent the next five years on an endless summer. I did the summertime working on the Salmon River, uh, doing multi-day trips on the Middle Fork and Lower Salmon mainly. And, and then I spent eight months a year in the Southern Caribbean uh, as a sailing instructor and charter captain. So I would fly to the islands in November, October, November sometime, do seven day, seven or 10 day sailing trips in the Grenadines and then fly back to Idaho in June and go right to the river and push boats all summer and do it again. And there were, yeah, five cycles of that. You know, the best years of my life, arguably, uh, but also it was during those times where I lost control of my drinking and drug use that had always been a part of my life. Um, not always, but had been for so long. I, like I said, I started drinking when I was 14. But it was during those five years that, uh, you know, things, I lost control of it. And, um, but at the same time, I was, I was living the dream. I love the work. I still love the work. Like I, I was just having a great time and I was getting a ton of field days and just had, you know, I had very little, I had a little trailer that I bought that I lived in, in between trips and a couple of duffel bags. There was not much to my, like a very few things that I owned. I had no place to live. I just rolled from one thing to the next and just kept working. There were a couple of seasons there, like 16, 17, 18, where I was doing 35 weeks in the field a year, like, like a lot of days out. Did you know it was a lot when you were doing it? Like I did, but I didn't care. Mm -hmm. I was like I was tired, you know, and I was partying and I was just just going for it. And it was just continuing. It was just kept coming. You know, there was no shortage of work and you know and I'm I was good at it. At that point I had risen to the point where I was leading the trips and I loved being there and I was a leader in the group and the outfitters trusted me and everything got done. Um, and there were so, so many near misses and so many days where it was like, whoa, you know, um, but, but relatively free and clear. It was just, it was, uh, it was a hell of a deal for sure. Looking back at it, it was a, it was an incredible run there for a few years. Well, it, well, it sounds like it really fulfilled a sense of purpose for you. Like you're able to rise up to the ranks and really, you know, be sought after and, and wanted by these guiding companies and do run really good trips. It sounds like, and come in with this really strong work ethic that, you know, you've learned at an early age. So it just sounds like it was a really good environment for you in terms of purpose. It was until it wasn't. Somewhere in there was the 
the top of the game. Like it was as good a guide as I had ever been. And then I went down the other side of that hill. And the last seasons, specifically, I was slipping. I was making mistakes. I was not treating people as well. I was getting burned out. I was using every day and drinking every day. And guests were complaining. I remember getting my first like really bad review from a sailing trip, and it broke my heart to hear what these people said about me. And and that's where things you know, it got it got real dark at the end that last year 1819 was was a little rough um because my performance had slipped so i had i made it i was doing the thing doing exactly what i wanted to do and i was doing it well and then i wasn't um and it, it ended um yeah we're going to take a short pause from the interview with john and introduce the stress continuum This is a tool used in modern counseling practices and is also used by some river guides to gauge their personal status. It is a set of benchmarks that can help a person understand themselves in a given situation at a given time. It was originally developed by the U.S. military in the early 2000s and has been adopted and adapted for use by various guide organizations to help river guides understand their status. Here's Ginny exploring the stress continuum. Talking about the stress continuum, this was developed originally from working with combat vets. Laura McGladry did a great job of putting together the stress continuum with the Responder Alliance. The Responder Alliance has taken the operational stress guide and has really applied it to a language around first responders, search and rescue, ski patrol, river guiding cultures, these cultures that can use this in order to recognize Am I getting activated in these environments? So she's developed this language. There's the green zone, the yellow zone, the orange zone, and the red zone. So green is ready, a sense of mission, emotionally healthy. Green zone means, hey, my nervous system is really not being activated. I'm in connection. I'm in flow state. Like I'm, I have a sense of what my job is. I'm on the river. I'm psyched to be there. I'm engaging with clients in a healthy way. I'm not frustrated with clients. I can feel a sense of purpose on the river and a sense of joy being out here. And if something bad happens or, you know, a conflict happens with a guide or a guest, I'm able to respond to that in a healthy way rather than a reactive way. And then yellow is starting to move into my nervous system is starting to get activated right now. Maybe not sleeping as well at night. Maybe I'm getting frustrated with clients right now. I've got a shorter fuse. I may be cutting corners on, you know, tying down Paco pads on the raft, you know, like, like just trying to, trying to get things done fast and also like a sense of loss of creativity as well. And then you start to move into the, the orange, the nervous system responses are getting to be more severe. So you might be numb to certain experiences or disengaged with the guests, isolating more, exhausted. And then red is moving into more critical. This is red zone. This is not good. I mean, this this might be like suicidal thinking. This might be severe emotional behaviors like drinking, trying to dissociate from this pain of the nervous system being so activated. So the goal is that people can look at this this continuum and and to say, where am I today? Am I am I acting in the green zone or am I acting more in the yellow zone? 
hey, is my team, are we acting in the green zone or are we acting more in the yellow and orange? And if as an individual or as a team, you're starting to recognize you're more in the yellow, the orange, or even the red, you can name it and then talk about a plan to get out of that, to get back up into more of the green zone. So I think for a long time, you know, in the guiding world, I don't think we really had a language around that. We could recognize when we were really burned out, but we didn't recognize the progression from green to red. And so I think it's really, this is a really great guide to bring more awareness to our bodies, to bring more awareness to our teams as to how are we acting, how are we responding, and what can we do, what kind of plans can we create to operate more in healthy ways. With the stress continuum now introduced, we return to the interview with John. Ginny begins by asking John about his location on the stress continuum. When you were in the the green phase, in in the guiding phase, those five years where it's like I'm living the dream, like how would you describe living the dream and how that felt in your body and what you were telling yourself during those days? I just get chills even thinking about it. I mean, it's euphoric. I mean, I remember, uh, you know, riding into the middle fork on the truck and just sitting on the back of the truck and it was like weak, whatever. Nobody knew at that point. And just being like, look at this. Look what we get to do every day. Look at this place. We had an incredible crew. I worked with this just amazing group and we were just loved each other and supported each other and we were tight and we were good. And I was just so happy and boating and just, and then the transitions, you know, heading south to the islands every year was like, cause I had become really enchanted with sailing at this point. And I was, I had purchased a boat and was, you know, the instructor trainer down there. And I was getting to pick my trips and run the hot boats and get to do the most desirable trips of the whole group. And I had these relationships in the Caribbean with all these families and friends. And, and there was so much love and just so much happiness and gratitude from the guests and I had simplified my life to the point where I had, I had plenty of money. Like as I was getting tips and so I lived on cash and it was just easy. All was right with the world for a while there. Like it was just great. I hear you say there were some near misses. I hear you say there are some experiences and I'm, I'm curious to hear a little bit more about those experiences or those near misses and if they affected moving from that green zone into more of the yellow or the, the orange zones. Yeah. You know, I think it's probably a a chicken or egg kind of debate. Like, you know, did the near misses happen because I was yellow or orange or did they, you know, send me into the next one? And I, I can't, I don't know, but the reality is, is that they are linked uh, for sure. Um, near misses rarely happen when everybody's in the green. I mean, there's environmental things that just come out of nowhere and it gets, it gets weird, but, but rarely, to be honest, in my experience, most of the time when there's a mistake, it's because somebody's not well. Um, and, and that was me in a few cases, um, you know, and it would be, start out with little things like, oh crap, we forgot the kayak paddles. 
you know, or like something dumb like that. Well, we forgot the kayak paddles because we were all drunk when we were packing the truck, um, you know, and or at least I was drunk. I can't say what where anybody else was, but we made a mistake because we were tired, you know, and then there'd be, you know, just a less than perfect line down through a raft, you know, at the paddle boat and get a bigger piece of the rock than you should have. And somebody takes a swim and gets banged up and then you're pulling back in the boat and you're like, and they're fine, you know, and I'm sitting back there going, come on, man, you're better than that. And I would beat myself up the rest of the day and feel like total shit and then get to camp that night and handle it in the only way I knew how, which was chemically and, uh, and cook dinner and go to bed and get up the next morning and, you know, get back to work. And that stuff just, you know, it started happening. And then, you know, the trip that I got the really bad review in the Caribbean, that one shook me up. Yeah. That one, that one sucked. That was when PID had been put on paper then. You know, it was written down and read to me by the boss. <laughs> and it's it was rough. And it sent me into a depressive state. And that was when I found myself in that very orange, dark orange, red phase. Like, that's when it really, like, I got depressed and I started using destructively and um, questioning it all. What are you doing with your life, you piece of shit? Like, you're fucking better than this, you know? And it, it got sad. And, and then it was like, should I even go? Should I even do this? Should I even go next week? You know? Who who have I become? All this really bad stuff. And so it's a, it was a, you know, it's a slow decline. I don't, there wasn't like a big event that happened, but the decline happened. And, and what would guests see or what would your passengers see as you're in that, that dark orange, maybe into the red? Like, what would they witness about you? Like a Jekyll and Hyde person. So the guests would see, like, the kindest, most loving, uh, attentive and uh, guide in the group and who seems to be switched on and is the leader. And then a few hours later see a, a drunken jackass who's saying inappropriate things and just dropped the cake in the sand, like, and, and is laughing about it and doesn't seem to give a shit about anybody or what they think or see, you know? And so the, and then the next morning it's back to the other guy and, you know, and, and so they would, they would see that flip flop happen. And, uh, it's it, from what others have told me, like, it's a, it's a horrible thing to watch. It's it's hard to observe. Were those people that were watching this decline, clients, these clients that are watching the decline, are these return people that have known you for seasons who are not only seeing you Jekyll and Hyde in a in a 24-hour span, but in a few years, or are they continuously new to you people? Uh, a bit of both. You know, I would say that uh, 75% of my guests were first-timers probably, you know, down there. So there were, there were a few definitely that, that did multiple trips over the years. Same thing on the river. Mm -hmm. um, there's more repeats on the river actually at that point, because that business was so much more established mm -hmm. and been around a lot longer. So yeah, a bit of both. Is that, is that critique from those, those, those annual guests also knocking you down 
in like how you like you, you talked about you get you got this review on the sailing boat on the sail trip are you also feeling this like annual guest review you're like oh shit i am i am dropping everything in front of these people and they're seeing they're seeing a major change from last year to this year um i think that the the hard part was that the ones who did come back and do multiple trips i'd really gotten to know them you know, and we had spent some time, uh, you know, sitting down at the raft on the side of the river late at night talking about life or on the back of the sailboat doing the same thing. And it was a part of the job that I really loved. But I also realized that I didn't remember those conversations, yeah. you know, and so people would catch me like, oh, yeah, you know, you, you've told me that before or I already told you all of this, you know, and that always made me sad. It was embarrassing, to be honest. Um, so, yeah, I knew they saw it. And so there's definitely more of a letdown. But the but the reality is, is that it didn't really matter to me if it was a first-time client or a repeat client. The job's the job. Um, and so they both hurt. <laughs> <laughs> whether they're first timers and didn't have a good experience or I've had them out on three or four trips or five, you know, and they, I wasn't as good as I had been in the past. Mm. They both, they both get to you. And, and when you say they hurt, um, I, I'm curious about what it is that hurt about that. What, what were you telling yourself in that, in that hurt? I knew I was better. I, I, I'm like, you could be so much better than this. Uh, cause I had been, and I was like, gosh, you know, do better, do the work, you know? And, and I would do well for a little while and, and, uh, maybe not drink during the day or, or, uh, uh, get out and swim every morning, you know, before, and on the sailboat, we would, you know, I try to jump in the ocean every morning and swim but get some exercise and, and I'd have good stretches, you know, but then would always just circle right back into the, into, um, more use and abuse, you know, it just kept happening. But, um, yeah, it was a pretty vicious cycle in there for a little while. So a few questions about the drugs. Are you, are you, is this going beyond smoking weed? Oh Yeah. Far beyond, like at work, <laughs> far beyond smoking weed. Yeah, I mean, uh, well, what's at work when you're a guide? You're always at work, right? I mean, even though you don't get paid for a 24-hour day, uh, you are in charge of clients Yeah, for 24 hours for seven days. Like if something happens in the middle of the night, you're on duty. And so if if, you know, if we had eaten mushrooms or had uh, got a bag of cocaine and been up all night, that happened. Mm -hmm. And, and so there you are. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I didn't, with guests, I, I was never um, super fucked up. You know, I remember I've definitely drank with guests. I definitely smoked weed with guests, uh, in my care, you know, on boats, but, um, 
the hard drugs was mainly off duty. It was mainly like that one night you had off in between trips. We would really blow it out. Um, that was more common uh, where, you know, like I say, Molly, ecstasy, LSD. I mean, I never put a needle in my arm and I'm glad I didn't. Um, but uh, there wasn't much else that didn't, pa didn't pass through me at some point. I'm gathering from some of the things you've said that you are drinking on the water. You're you're drinking on the river during the daytime when you're rowing boats, and then on the sailing, are you also drinking while you're underway? Uh no. Um, I didn't. Uh, I was pretty good about not drinking when I had guests in my boat um, on the river, or you might have one beer with the guests late in the afternoon mm -hmm. or something, but I, w I never did that. And, okay. and certainly not on the sailboat. Um, the, it was on the sailboat. It was like, once the anchor's down, the gloves are off. Mm -hmm. uh, and very, very similar. The, the times drinking on the boat was when I was pushing gear boats, you know, <laughs> cause you didn't have any guests. And so it was pretty regular to get stoned um, mm -hmm. and row the gear boat. And uh, that was just kind of how, how I did it. Um, but but uh, not with guests in the boat. You know, we were all – and the crew did that pretty well. The crew would, would call you out on that um, because it was such an obvious, like, negligent thing to do. Um, and so the, the it didn't happen. You know, people were – but it didn't mean that, you know, I mean, if you would have given me a breathalyzer at 930 in the morning, a lot of those mornings, like I'm sure they wouldn't have let me drive the car, um, right. you know, and so it wasn't like we, I was completely sober, but we didn't get like hammered during the day. I didn't, you know, um, it was mainly in the evenings. But again, you're still on duty. Like yeah, it, it's yeah. a, it's such a strange thing about it. Like it's okay once we're at the beach, and the reality is, is that the beach is so much more dangerous than the river. Statistically, way more happens, uh -huh. way more accidents happen in camp than they do on the water. But yet, you know, that's not how it's managed. You know, John, you, um, you're describing <laughs> the endless summer. I mean, these are just great visuals and details so the five years endless summer yeah you're running the rivers of idaho you're sailing the waters in the caribbean and you are doing this like year-round gig it's great you said as you said you're living the dream the thing that almost like immediately came to my mind was like the depth the crew you're working with like this the, you show up in the back of the truck to the to the middle fork put in you're like man look at this and then you're working with these brilliant people like the trust level is so deep and the love is so deep. These are your river homies. I'm curious about your other relationships at that time. Your mom's gone, right? Yeah. Your mom's gone. I think that, that Steve is gone. Yep. And, and then I don't know otherwise, like you got a dad, you got Wisconsin people, uh, what's up with those folks and your relationships? And then I, I would assume that you probably have some other Idaho relationships. I'm, I'm curious about those and how they trail together and how they don't trail together. My closest relationships during that time were with my fellow guides. They were my family and my encounters with basically everyone else were pretty transactional. When I fly into the farm 
and blow through town. I mean, they think I'm Indiana Jones, man. Like all they see is the pictures and the internet of, of Totten's climbing a mountain, sailing a boat across an ocean or running a whitewater river repeat every day. That's his life. And then, and he, and then I blow into rural Wisconsin to see my friends and we just get drunk. And then I'd get back on a plane and go back to work. And I would have a, you know, brief check-in with my dad, but we've never been great at getting to the point. And so it's, you know, Hey, how are you? How's things going? And, um, and the, the deep conversations would be maybe with some old friends. Occasionally there'd be an Eddie out somewhere, but pretty much my close relationships were with my fellow guides either uh working on sailboats or on this on the river and there was absolutely no chance at romantic involvement uh there it's you know i remember especially the last couple of years feeling a depth of loneliness that i'd never felt before because it was impossible to get close to me there was no way in and i had a couple of friends say that to me they're like john you're pretty tough egg to crack like because i would complain or or share with them about how i just man i just can't seem to find a woman and i i want that you know and they would look at me and be like well how (laughs) like you're high and drunk or you're gone you're either not here physically or not here mentally all the time. So how can anyone ever get close to you? So I had my, my family were the, were the guides. That's who I was close to. That's those were the relationships of substance. Um, and everybody else was just kind of on the periphery because I was constantly in motion. Um, you know, if you're, you're unpacking one bag and packing another, shaking the sand out, you know, of the bags and doing laundry and going again. Um, and jumping on an airplane and going here to do this or that and just constant motion. And it got very lonely um, towards the end, which, again, just only increased my my use and abuse of, of, of drugs and alcohol. A River Guide size thank you goes out to John Totten for being our guest in this and all three episodes of this cluster about the health of River Guides. This is the end of the first episode in the cluster. The next two episodes are live and ready for you to listen. We continue through John's story into his hardest times and then the work he put into rebuilding himself, working towards eventually a new style of guiding. Today's sponsor is the Denver and Front Range of Colorado Nissan dealerships. Find them on the web at www.nissanusa.com and also on Instagram. You can find a dealer locator link on their website. In today's episode notes, you can find links to various organizations that can provide support if you or someone you know is looking for support related to mental health for River Guides. An additional thank you goes out to Jenny Feebig for joining me to co-host these episodes. She is with us for each episode in this cluster. Her website is jennyfeebig.com, www.jennyfeebig.com. All of our music is created and performed by Gene Reiniger. Be in touch anytime. Hello at theriverradius.com. Thanks so much for joining The River Radius.
They're dressed perfectly. They move around. They're not hanging by a thread like the rest. Looked like a 17-foot wood tick going down the river. It was clear that they were comfortable and that the others weren't. The cows don't care if it's, you know, Halloween or Christmas Day or New Year's Eve. It's irrelevant. Sunday, Monday, none of that matters. I spent the next five years on an endless summer 